Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome everybody to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Writer. Thank y'all for tuning in on what is a wonderful, wonderful Wednesday. As always, if you want to reach out to the show, learn more about it, see what's going on, head on over to theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com. So I've had a uh, person message in asking for a little clarification on Berea College. Is it, you know, those of you who listened, of course, Monday heard when I talked about uh, Berea College having this communist group uh, that they this this college sanctioned communist young communist of, of group communist party organization as well as having a foreign national that is the president of that organization and and one of the points that was brought up that that I brought up was that you know our our tax dollars are funding this kind of behavior. I got a message in from someone saying that, look, you know, Berea is a private university. Uh, you know, it is privately funded. Our tax dollars aren't pushing it forward. Uh, but that's not very, uh, it, I guess it depends on how you look at things. Um, because the claim that Berea College is private, so it receives no tax dollars at all, is not quite accurate. Now, back in the day, maybe this was very true. That Berea, you know, received not one dollar of federal funding. However, depending on how you look at all these state and federal programs that exist now that are taxpayer funded, well, it depends on how you look at those. I look at those money as federal funding. When I look at FAFSA, when I look at Pell Grants, when I look at uh, the the numerous of other college-based grants that are offered to college students that are funded through our tax dollars, I look at that as federal dollars as federal funding. And some others may look at that and say they don't look at it that way, that somehow, even though it's taxpayer funded, the fact that a university is taking those dollars doesn't mean they're receiving tax dollars. But to kind of push back on that notion a little bit, let's actually look at how much Berea is taking in, in federal dollars, in tax dollars. So, so it may be through a vehicle like FAFSA, but instead of being a line item, because, you know, public universities like UK, like EKU, like um, WKU, those public universities, they're getting an actual line item on the state budget where they're receiving dollars from right from the taxpayer coffers. You know, Berea isn't getting that. It isn't getting a line item that says, here you go, uh, here is X amount of taxpayer dollars. What Berea is getting is these student aids that are being funded by federal dollars. And like I said, back in the day, it may have been the case that Berea was completely funding itself. But nowadays, Berea, if, if we're counting those federal dollars as funding, um, Berea is, is a large part of the way they operate is coming from the taxpayer pockets. Let me, let me explain here. Okay. So we're going to go over to Berea's own website. When you go to Berea's own website and you look under types of financial aid, this is right from their top. So many people cite the fact that Berea charges no tuition and, and they think this comes only from a federal or not from federal, sorry, but only from a private endowment. 
that it's all donation based, that there's no tax dollars and it's free college. However, when you head over to their financial aid, they're pretty clear here. Uh, under their first setting uh, heading, which says tuition promise scholarship, they say after all federal, state, institutional, private grants and scholarships have been considered, a Berea tuition scholarship is awarded to recover the remaining costs of tuition. Berea actually targets low-income uh, uh, kids, kids that are coming from low-income situations, low-income opportunities, uh, and, and, and targets those kids to specifically provide a free college experience, which is great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to target those kids. However, those groups of children do qualify for huge amounts of taxpayer funds in order to help play for the college. And, and Berea is very clear. They target those kids and then they will not issue a scholarship to cover their tuition, to make Berea truly uh, uh, tuition free as it's sold as, as everybody knows it as a tuition free college. They do not, they refuse to cover the tuition according to their own website until after you have first completed and filled out all your federal, state, institutional, and private scholarships that could be considered. In fact, you're not allowed to go to school there based upon their own website. You're not allowed to go to school there unless you have filled out your FAFSA form. Because they need that money first. Before they're saying, they're, they're not paying, like if it costs 20 grand a year, 30 grand a year for you to go to school there. They're not paying that 30 grand out of their endowment. That's not how it's working. First, they're going to look at, okay, how much can we get from the federal government? And you may say, well, Andrew, meh. you know, that, that could be there, but maybe that's not a lot. Just for understanding here, the average FAFSA award across the U.S., uh, according to FAFSA's own website, January of uh, 10th, 2020, I'm sorry, this is in January 2021, it was $10,590 per year. That's the average amount of FAFSA awarded. Now, not to mention that now we're talking about Berea College, where kids are going to be above average. They're, they're going to be a lot uh, above average there because their, their income situation within their family, which is what FAFSA looks at, is going to be a lot different. It's going to be a lot worse off than the average. So if the average is receiving 10000 it wouldn't be crazy at all to see that Berea College is you know, bringing in 10, 15 grand a student in FAFSA. But on top of that, and this is from, once again, Berea College's own website, we turn now to Pell Grants, they mention. Um, that can be awarded anywhere from $767 a year to $7,395 a year. The Kentucky College Access Program, that's $5,300 a year, it could be. So when you add this all up, it is not hard to see that, and, and Berea isn't just like, hey, if you get these funds, we'll help you. Uh, well, well, we're here to help you or here's a tuition amount. You got to pay it. No, no. Berea is saying we are going to specifically, basically file these for you. We're going to give you all the forms. We're going to get them all filled out and get them all submitted. So that way Berea college can bring in as much taxpayer funds as we can from these sources before we start to cover your tuition ourselves. That is the way that they're operating now. Maybe it's not how they used to be before FAFSA and all these other places were a thing, but how they operate now, very large amounts are coming in from the federal government. 
And how much of their overall budget does that actually take up? Well, let's take a look here. So according to Berea's federal tax return, as translated by ProPublica, it says that Berea had $243 million in revenue with $155 million in expenses and only has $1.87 billion in total assets. That includes your endowment, that includes your land, your building, and other assets. So total revenue was $243 million. Now, clearly, that isn't all revenue. It can't be from investment funds. I mean, they only have $1.87 billion in total assets. And actually, according to their tax statements, sales of assets, uh, which could be stocks as well as buildings, things like that, uh, and as well as their investment income totaled only 99 million. They actually said 119 million of their total revenue is coming from contributions also tuition payments, which could be some private donation. But according to Bria's own website, only 8% of their budget comes from private donations. So that means on the high side, it's 19.5 million from donations coming into their budget. So when we look closely, at publicly available information, we can conclude that Berea College is getting a hundred million ish or so a year from FAFSA grants and other scholarship opportunities. We'll have a little bit more to say about this uh, after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you are back with the Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics before the break. I was going over a listener had sent in a clarification on the fact that, uh, in their belief, that Berea College was privately funded as a private institution isn't publicly funded. So we're breaking down their financials, and after digging through publicly available information on their tax return, as well as what's on their website, we can come to a general consensus that Berea College is receiving about $100 million a year from FAFSA grants, other scholarships. And that when your expenses are $155 million a year, well, that works out that you're getting a half to two-thirds of your operating budget is being covered by the taxpayers through one vehicle or another. This does open you up to the opinions of the taxpayers. I mean, it's, it's, I think we can easily claim right here that Berea College would not be nearly the scope and size it is without the fact that it receives so much from the taxpayer's pocket, from taxpayer-funded resources. You can say that, Andrew, these funds, though, are available to any kids who go to college. And, and maybe this is a good point to have a conversation about why are we continuing to fund colleges in the first place from taxpayer-funded sources like this, but that's a different discussion. But you can say, Andrew, Berea College is private, and I, and I guess that is true in the same sense that it's not given a line item of funding in the state budget, like other educational places like EKU, but Berea does rely on those tax. You take away those tax dollars from Berea, you're taking away coverage of about half to two thirds of their operating budget. You've taken, if, if they didn't receive a single dollar from the taxpayer's pocket, they would not be able to operate. They wouldn't be able to. So it's really hard to claim you're completely private and not subjected to the political uh, thoughts and opinions of the taxpayers in Kentucky and in America when you are receiving, you're, you are so reliant on those same tax dollars. And, and this does go to the overall point I made Monday. And, and this is why it's important 
that Berea College and many other universities have sanctioned these clubs and organizations that advocate for the destruction of the Western world. In Berea's case, of course, it's the Berea College Young Communist League. And, and Berea and the president of that league and Berea has imported, they signed off on a student visa for this foreign national that is coming in, creating these subversive groups while then advocating for terrorist organizations that call for death of America when he's out there advocating for Hamas terrorists. And all of this is being funded, at least in part, by our tax dollars that we are giving through to Berea University through one vehicle or another. And as I said Monday, these are the actions of a suicidal country and state that clearly doesn't care about its own future. If Berea wants to claim free speech and that's a private university status, then they should stop taking one dime of taxpayer funds. And more importantly, this is why we as taxpayers should stop funding universities completely. How about if you want to go to college, you pay for all of it. And if you don't, you don't then I'd have a lot less political opinion on what you're doing. And you know what? Tuition would actually be cheaper because it's not uh, some inflated marketplace because the taxpayers are coming in and subsidizing it like we are. Universities would have to make cuts and the first to go would be the DEI departments. I'm telling you that much right now. That would be the first to go. Those they, they, they'd be like, oh, we got to cut corner. We got to start cutting costs here. If, if, if every single tax dollar was taken out from Berea College tomorrow that they're getting, they would they would fold in on itself right now. I mean, that's the way it looks. I mean, I, they're based on their publicly available information, it is key to how they operate that they get these federal dollars in, that they're taking in. I mean, they're targeting students. They're specifically, not that it's a bad thing, but they're specifically targeting low-income students in order to get all the federal dollars out of them they can in order, if these kids didn't qualify for all, for probably 10 to 20 grand, not probably, but at least 10, if not 20 grand in federal funding for them to go to university, Berea wouldn't be able to send them to the university. So it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's taxpayer funded in that sense. I mean, it, not all of it, but a good portion of it is taxpayer funded. A pretty good portion of it, at least. I mean, if, if you think Berea College isn't taxpayer funded, um, I mean, that would be like saying that a, a, uh, a food bank that takes your food stamps from you, but then will turn around and serve you three square meals a day, but is maybe covering the labor to prepare you those meals, isn't receiving any benefits from the taxpayers at all. Now, I, what they're doing might be a good thing. I'm not saying I disagree with all that Berea is doing. I just like I don't disagree with what the food bank's doing. But my point is this, is that when you take these, these tax dollars, you're opening yourself up to the opinions of others. That's the entire point of the segment, was that you were opening yourself up to us having an opinion on you importing communists. Now, moving away from priorly talked about topics, um, LEX18 has this, the Nicholasville Police Department is reporting that a small group of elementary students at Brookside uh, Elementary School recently ate CBD gummies. They said a student brought it from home thinking it was candy. Now, those of you who've been listening this week, listen, yesterday, no, I, I dug into House Bill 420, an aptly named bill, 
that is all about legalizing marijuana in Kentucky. And this really kind of plays into some of the, the issues I was talking about. We, we have some regulatory hurdles we need to come over, get over here. We've got some issues here. Um, we, we, without weed being legal, we have kids bringing weed gummies to school, right? Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a danger. I mean, it really does. I, you know, I, I wonder how the teacher figured it out, right? I mean, you know, teacher walks in and all the kids start asking about when's lunch. <laughs> you know, they all got the munchies. What's going on over here? Um, it is, it is out of control, but I got to be honest with you. This ain't the first we heard about. If you remember last year, you had a similar situation of, I think, uh, a pot brownies being brought to school in Louisville public schools. So, so th this is in a state where weed isn't even legal, right? I mean, it's deregulated and decriminalized in a lot of these, not deregulated, but decriminalized in a lot of these, uh, you know, cities like Lexington, like Louisville, where police just don't enforce weed laws anymore. But even with uh, it not being legal in the state, we got kids bringing these things in. Uh, certainly bringing it into the classroom. And so definitely need to, to see some improvement there before we even begin to talk about legalization, if you even think that is a good idea in the first place, not necessarily something uh, I would completely agree with. Representative Timoney has put forward a bill on name changing, offering an opportunity for parents uh, to be able to change the name of their kids if uh, without both parents agreeing. So I guess right now in law, it looks like based upon, so when you read a bill, um, you'll see the, the bold parts. If you go into LRC legislative research commission's website and you go to read a bill, you'll see bold parts that tell you what's new. You'll see crossed out parts that tell you, uh, what they're getting rid of. And then anything that's not bold or crossed out is just current law that is being left alone. And currently in law, it looks like there was no provision uh, for parents to easily change the name of their minor children without both parents consenting, or there wasn't a clear-cut pathway to do it. So Timney is taking a look at making that easier to do. Now, the most innocent reason you could think of, like like if you're if I'm trying to put my mind in the mind of Representative Timoney and I'm trying to figure out why he'd propose this bill, the most innocent reason I can think of is that you have children of divorce and perhaps, um, one of the parents or, or separated parents. So, you know, you'd parents together, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, what have you, they have a child, they name the child, they give the child the same last name as the father. So very common to do still. And, but then the father takes off, never seen again. And so you end up with a kid with a last name different than the mother's who, you know, will never even see their father. And the mom wants to change that kid's last name to her last name because she just thinks, you know, I'm not going to keep him having this name with this deadbeat dad of his. I want to change it. I want something different. That would be the most innocent situation. And, and honestly, that would be not not a horrible reason to do it. But this bill has a lot of other, I think, far-reaching ramifications of what it's opening up 
And I think that's worth a pretty big discussion here because not only are we talking about, you know, divorce and, and separation type situations. And, and I covered this before when we were covering um, some of the divorce law and proceedings, things about these no fault divorces and other things. Is it realistically speaking to our society? You look at our ills and you look at what's causing them and single parent households children without a mother or a father, or perhaps neither, are significantly worse off than children who do have two-parent households, or at least two involved parents. And so the question becomes, uh, does this create uh, more of a signal to mothers, to fathers, to children that they shouldn't have two parents? Is this continuing to manufacture that type of uh, culture? through law, because that is one thing we have to watch with law. Are we manufacturing a culture, but it also does something else. And in this crazy world of transgender children, whatever that means, um, <laughs> in this crazy world of, of these abominations, and I don't mean that they themselves are abomination, but the fact that we as a society have gone so mentally insane that we think this is healthy. Um, what, what other ramifications could this law have we'll talk about that after this short break you're listening to the andrew cooperator show your source for kentucky politics and you are back with the andrew cooperator show as a reminder if you want to reach out to the show feel free to email info at the once again that's info at the before the break we were talking about a bill from killing and timony that offers a pathway for parent a parent to change the name of their minor child without the other parent agreeing to create basically a family court process, civil court process of sorts, that if one parent wanted to change the name of the kid, then the other parent could come in and um, would have a legal recourse to disagree, uh, but a judge would have to weigh in on that opinion. Right now, there's not really a way to do it if both parents don't want to change the kid's name. And I went over, you know, in the most innocent sense of the way it could be, is that this is about, you know, a, a, a deadbeat dad or a mom and one of them runs off and they want to change the kids. What normally would be obviously deadbeat dad in this situation because we're dealing with name changing. Um, and generally speaking, you know, if if the dad's involved, mom's involved, the kid doesn't get the mom's last name. And so the, the dad takes off, leaving the mom all alone. And the mom wants to change the name of the child uh, in order to make them feel better about, you know, the kid's name. But that's that's a pretty innocent thing. But, I you know, I talked about, obviously, that this can create cultural issues as far as single parentness. And that's something we need to watch out for. But the other thing is it creates a pathway in revenue and, and revenue creates a pathway and avenue that these uh, far left parents that disagree with maybe their more conservative counterparts can go ahead and change the gender of a child. So remember, this is a name change process here. And so when you deal with trans, these transgender kids, you'll, you, you're starting to see more of these court cases where arguments are breaking out. Uh, over one parent saying, no, I don't want you to uh, 
um, do surgeries to my child. I don't want you to give my child hormones and chemically castrate them because they think they're a different gender. I don't think that's healthy. And the other parent who's been completely indoctrinated by the far left cult says, no, 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 I think, I think that's a good idea. I want to do those things. I think that's what's best for the child. And so these cases are ending up in courts where uh, they're arguing about it. And you're seeing this, of course, all across the country. Well, this you could see that this bill could also be opening up the avenue that if a mom or dad is transitioning their child and let's say Billy John wants to become uh, Barbara John or whatever at the age of seven, Billy says, you know what, I'm, I'm a... I'm a Lisa now. And so the mom goes in and goes down to the courts or whatever to change the name of uh, Billy to Lisa. Well, right now, obviously, um, if both parents don't agree, that, that, that becomes really difficult for them to do. But with what Timony's putting in place in this bill, well, now when, when they go down to change the name of the child from Bob to Lisa, well, now there's an avenue to do that. Now, you'd normally say that is not what Timney is trying to do with this bill, but I, I would call on him to make sure he files a committee sub to make that clear in law, to say that, you know, this change can have nothing to do with any kind of gender transitioning treatments, that this is only about, uh, you know, these situations involving deadbeat parents or what have you. But unless he does that, you can also assume that Timony may be doing it for this reason. And the only reason why I say that is because Timony's track record, representing Timony's track record on these transgender issues is not good. It just is not. Representative Timony uh, uh, has, has consistently voted against pieces of legislation like we've seen uh, up in Frankfurt that have banned things like transitioning children, like uh, 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 chemically castrating them, hormones, uh, uh, you know, transgender kids in the bathroom and, and cross-dressing kids in, in different bathrooms, protecting male and female sports, so on and so forth. He has consistently voted no on those bills. Almost every single bill that's been in that category, he has voted with the Democrats on. So while perhaps this could be just him trying to make it easier on divorced parents or parents dealing with deadbeats. And, and perhaps that's the case. His track record though, does pass a lot. You know, it, it creates some doubt on that point. Um, and so I would encourage representative Timney to make sure that this has nothing to do with trying to gender transition children to add either uh, an amendment or committee sub where that certainly clears uh, that question up completely. A few other bills that we've had uh, recently that uh, had some movement last week that got a committee vote was Senate Bill 45, which is a missing adult bill. Uh, I guess in law right now that, um, you know, like we get those Amber Alerts or those Golden Alerts, but there's not really a, a full alert system for just a missing like 30-year-old adult, uh, just a normal 30-year-old adult that could be like kidnapped uh, missing, having issues, so on and so forth. Uh, there's not really anything for that. So this uh, had, has passed out of committee, uh, going out to the floor. This would attempt to address that and allow missing adults to also receive the same Amber Alert kind of treatments as um, 
everyone else does as far as kids and you know so on and so forth one other thing to kind of talk about here is that uh, there's a bill going working its way through the committee process uh, that was dealing with compliance moving that put compliance and sports betting and wagering as its own line items under um, the instead of so it used to be just under paramutual wagering within the uh, committee the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission Board uh, used to say division of paramutual wagering used to be under their their line items of what they were in charge of and so it's kind of parsing out division of compliance and division of sports wagering and adding that into their duties uh, instead of just leaving it under paramutual wagering and compliance. And, uh, you know, not that that's an overall big thing. It's just kind of cleaning that up. It's not drastically changing uh, our unfortunate large amounts of betting situation we have going on. But it did cause me to actually dig into this commission a little bit and look about who's on it. And, and you know, the board is made up of people that the governor appoints. Uh, basically, right now, all the people on the board own horses or are involved with horse tracks or gambling of some sort. One is just a really, of course, two big donors. All of them, if you look at you look at their donation history, you're going to see they've been dumping some money into Bashir, one of which is like uh, one of the, the Morgans from Morgan and Morgans, who, by the way, uh, uh, I believe it's John Morgan from, you know, those ads, those lawyer ads, Morgan and Morgan, whatever. Um, he's one of the biggest Democrat donors in Kentucky. And a lot of people aren't aware of that, that when you're seeing those Morgan and Morgan ads, they're a huge Democrat donor, which does lead into some questions because about, about why our attorney general's office keeps using them uh, as attorneys too. Like just from a sheer political standpoint, like Daniel Cameron, for an example, when he was the attorney general, his office was giving tens of millions of dollars in attorney fees to Morgan and Morgan to hire them as attorneys. And you just wonder, that's kind of like putting nails in your own coffin in a way, just on a political standpoint. I mean, good on Cameron that he didn't let the, the lawyers, uh, when he was picking lawyers, their donation history to determine whether or not the attorney general's office would actually do business with them. That's like a good thing. If anything, that goes to show you how, straightforward at times Cameron certainly was or at least his office but my point of of bringing up this kind of this compliance group was just that it's a real fox and hen house situation you have these people that Bashir is appointing that have a financial interest in the horse racing industry that they themselves aren't elected at all making sure that the rest of the horse racing industry is doing what they're supposed to be doing it just seems like a real fox, like I said, fox and hen house situation. You'd think that that board should be made up of, you know, elected people or their designee, like just allow every single person on, uh, I believe, what is it? The Commission on uh, Licensing and Occupation Committee. I believe that's who oversees that board from the legislative side would be who'd do that. Just have every member of that board able to, you know, appoint a person or they themselves sit on the board. And then you don't have Fox and Hen House situation. Well, coming up, we'll be digging into, finally, John Dice opinion article. We'll have that after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show. And you are back with The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. So I've been meaning to get around to this. I think I actually wrote the show notes where I wanted to talk about this article maybe last week or two or three. I, it's It's been... 
uh, last week. I definitely wrote them last week when this op-ed came out. And it's just been uh, taking me forever to get around to it. But we're finally going to cover it. We're finally going to cover uh, John Dice's op-ed that he wrote. I mean, I know the Herald Leader keeps sharing it online a whole bunch. And everybody keeps... Well, not everybody, but just the Herald Leader keeps pushing it out there because they really like what it says. And it's it's this op-ed from John David Deitch. Deitch. It's I had this problem last time too, because like six, seven months ago, he also wrote an op-ed. And it was also awful and terrible. Um, but how do you spell his last name? And so it's John David D-Y-C-H-E. And apparently, this could be before my time. I know some of you listening to this may be like Andrew. He's well, we all know who he is. This is well before your time, but I didn't hear about this guy until about a year ago. And apparently he used to be a big political commentator here in Kentucky. So, you know, as I'm digging into this, this is now the second time, about six months ago, he wrote another article all about how mad he was at Trump. He literally was apologizing. Six months ago, he wrote an article where he was apologizing that he ever supported the Republican Party because it ended up electing Trump. I'm, I'm not kidding. That's what he said. And at the time... I dug through his article and I was pointing out just how much this guy, this John character, was overstating his own worth while at the same time he was just debasing himself at the altar of leftism in an attempt to have his name be worthwhile again, even if only for a minute. And the embarrassment would only be worth it if he could get an inch of relevance back. Well, he is back again because apparently that hint, that little a little hint of attention, that little little hit to the veins he got there of attention, that little drug hit he got of attention. Well, it's worn off, and he's back. He's back for that dopamine he gets by being praised by all of the same people he politically used to be supposedly opposed to. And this time, he's going after McConnell, and I'm not going to sit here and defend McConnell, okay? We're Especially with what's going on now. I mean, have you guys seen that border deal? What a tire fire, let me tell you. Anyways, but I think the guy... Uh, McConnell overall, not worth defending, but, um, he does. And, and a lot of times too, McConnell, you know, he'll, people will say, well, he's done a lot of good things for Kentucky. I think McConnell just tries to take credit for a lot of the gains that the GOP has made in Kentucky, but in actuality, he ha- he himself hasn't achieved like anything on his own. It was Trump who did it. Um, the very man that the Kentucky establishment and people like McConnell hate, it's because of Trump that we had the state house. I've talked about this many a times, uh, where we can go through the data that McConnell had been in office for since the eighties and yet hadn't won back the Kentucky GOP and really hasn't made, hadn't made that much the, or wouldn't back the Kentucky house. And he really hadn't made that many gains over the last 20 or so years either. But then Trump comes in and finally the House flips over to Republican. You know, like I said, people want to give McConnell credit for that. I, you know, I think a lot of it was Trump is why they're in control. Finally, why they're in control. And I just think it's really ironic that McConnell hates Trump so much. But anyways, so I've done a few shows where I've gone over the numbers and everything else and why McConnell's awful and why he can't take those accolades and just I've really dug into it. But I so I'm not going to be defending Connell McConnell here either. But I am going to call out Dyth as the feckless fool he is for what he attacks McConnell for. Now he he, he first starts off by claiming that some 
in this op-ed, Dyth, and, and you can read it, it's in the Herald Leader, Dice starts off by claiming that some national media outlet had asked him to write in a pre-obituary for when McConnell dies. So like, hey, can you write an article or be prepared to write an article about McConnell that we can publish the day uh, that he dies? Which I suppose is possible um, that Dice really did get this call. Though, uh, remember, this is the same guy who gives himself so much credit for Trump's win that he felt a need to publicly apologize for ever supporting anyone who is Republican. So it could be he's a little full of himself and, and, and thinks a little more, bit more highly of himself. Maybe the, maybe the call was, hey, would you be interested, not would you write, write it? But, you know, whatever. Let's just take it at face value. So he says he turned it down because basically he, if he has nothing nice to say, uh, then he, he shouldn't write it after McConnell has passed and he wants to say it to his face. So he said, he said that I'm not going to write an obituary for McConnell because I don't like McConnell and I got things to say about McConnell, but I'm going to say it to his face because, you know, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's proper decorum. So he did say it to McConnell's face, I guess, publicly in a newspaper, in an op-ed that he wrote that, he is unsure if McConnell will ever even read. <laughs> so what did this op-ed say? Well, first he says that McConnell and himself, can't forget about himself there, can't, Dice can't, John, Johnny boy here can't, can't forget about himself. That's the entire reason why he writes for himself. Uh, misunderstood just how dangerous the Tea Party faction was. You know, the party that gave us Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, um, the, the tea party that while Barr is definitely not a tea party member, their grassroots effort is what gave the Republicans a sixth district in Kentucky in the first place. He says that he is, uh, uh, that, that entire faction was very dangerous to the Republican party and they should have never embraced it, which tells you exactly where this guy's head is at. He then goes on to claim that McConnell sold himself out to Trump in order to get a conservative majority on the Supreme Court to make himself a quote-unquote person of consequence into the future, to make for McConnell to make himself a person of consequence into the future. A move that John Johnny Boy here, John Dyethe, the author of the op-ed, also said caused long-term damage to the credibility and public perception of the Supreme Court as a judicial rather than political body that is so critically important to the country, especially in the times of constitutional crisis. And the article, um, yeah, it, it, that's, that's what he said. I mean, that's what he said in the article. He said that somehow it's Republicans who have caused the long-term damage to our national Supreme Court. Not the liberals who politicized the court. I mean, the minute that they found some right to kill babies and for gay men to get married in a constitution that mentions neither of these words or anything to do with medical at all in it, um, or the word marriage. The word marriage is also not in the constitution um, in, in the sense that, you know, getting married to one another. It was, though, um, somehow Dye thinks it was the Republicans who have politicized the Supreme Court, and to back up his claim, does he somehow try to point to how the Supreme Court has become political? Does he point to evidence that since Trump took office and appointed these justices, it has now become a political body? Well, he never says in the article any evidence. He just says it. He just says that 
Donald Trump, who McConnell enabled, made the Supreme Court more political with no supporting evidence, no supporting examples, nothing to point to how just appointing people made it somehow political. You know, I mean, he, he just at, at that point, he just sounds like a, an emotional teenage girl uh, instead of someone with a you know journalistic standard. I mean, I literally listed more claims to prove how the court has been politicized by the left long before Trump, things like gay marriage and, and Roe v. Wade and, and uh, so on and so forth, um, than he did in his entire article. Like in two minutes, I did that. So from here, Dyth decides he's going to go ahead and just dive into more whining and moaning about McConnell being too nice to Trump, which is what, a, what an odd claim, right? Um, I, I know when I think of McConnell, I think of somebody who's way too nice to Trump, but that's what John Dyth thinks. So did he say of anything of real importance or does he even reference McConnell much beyond this point? No, of course not. Because this wasn't for me or even McConnell, this was for Dyth to feel special and important again. And the only way he's felt special and important and recognized recently was by attacking Trump. So if he wanted to write an article about how bad McConnell is, he should have done that. But instead, he wrote an article about how much he hates Trump. It wasn't even about all the negative things McConnell's done over his entire history. Things that really did affect Kentucky for the negative. Things like passing the Clean Air Act that killed our coal industry. Things like moving our tobacco industry out of Kentucky. Things that really affected the economics of Kentucky. That's not the reason he dislikes him. He just dislikes him because of Trump. Because that's that's it. John has got Trump derangement syndrome well, y'all, that's what we've got time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining us back here tomorrow with a new episode. Have a great rest of your day. The views expressed on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show are that of the host, Andrew Cooperwriter, or his guest hosts, and do not represent the views or values of the station or advertisers. If you disagree with something on the show, feel free to reach out to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show at the Andrew Show. Dot com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com.